This is the future. And humanity is all but extinct. First they start skipping prescribed drug dosages. Then they begin touching. I volunteer as tribute! You can stop this. You can change things. I know that there's something more. Then we've only got one choice. We fight. Fight the future with Dan and Paul. Welcome to Fight the Future with Dan and Paul. And I'm Dan. I'm Paul. And we've got another special guest today. Hey, I'm Dustin. Dustin, welcome, Dustin, to the podcast. Thank you. Welcome to our podcast where we talk about young adult dystopias. Uh, no problem. I'm glad to be here. When people ask you about your job at a party, your parents' friends say, like, what do you tell them in the short version? Oh, well, I, I say that I uh, work on a sensor that's like an Xbox Connect, but it's very tiny. It goes in the back of a phone and lets you... Um, scan rooms and people uh and does a lot of uh tracking and i mean it's not really this way but in the context of the book we're about to review saying it scans people does sound a little bit creepy but it's not yeah. creepy you have to be like it's like taking a picture <laughs> of someone and you have to be like right next to them in order for it to work out but you can make 3d models of people and so i work on that it's the yeah the the word just even the word tracking has this, it's like, has, has this immediate visceral reaction after, if you spend too long reading this book. Right, right. You're also in San Francisco. I am. Um, so when I read this book, uh, I live on Valencia Street, and Cesar Chavez High School is like, I'm going to use Canadian units, uh, is like less than a kilometer from me. So I was like, what? what the, everything in this book, I know where it all is. I can see the bridge from my house. So. Very cool. Was Dr. Toro actually living in San Francisco when he wrote this? I actually don't know, but he did live in San Francisco for a while. And he's a Canadian, right? From from Ontario? Uh, yeah, he lived in Toronto for a while, uh, as did I. So I actually, one of his previous books, Someone uh, Comes to Town, Someone Leaves Town, is based in Kensington Market, which is near where I lived in Toronto. So I'm just kind of following him around and reading the relevant literature as he moves. In from the footsteps of Corey. So, but we're all Canadians, the three of us. One in Italy, which is me, and one in uh, San Francisco, and one in Victoria, British Columbia. One who still respects the homeland. <laughs> right. <laughs> What's interesting, I think this is the first book we've done, or the first story we've done, that it's a dystopia, but it's not actually post-apocalyptic. Right. It's unsettling how close it is to the present. What is a, an apocalypse in the context of the story sort of happens during the story <laughs> right right it is intra-apocalyptic what this is saying is i mean there's it's not there's no difference from our world technologically it's just saying that we're one big terrorist attack away from a dystopia at the state right. that we're in right now and that's what's so scary about it in most of the ones we see it's after the thing that causes the that puts them into this dystopia this is kind of like in the early stages i mean we we did the uh the tripods uh, a few weeks ago and this is this is the equivalent would be these are uh, all the people who are like, hey, maybe maybe these tripods aren't such a good thing. Maybe we should all stop wearing these caps on our heads. <laughs> Let's maybe kick these tripods out. It's interesting that we're looking at the tripods, alien metal invaders, as the equivalent of the Department of Homeland Security. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But that's very much in line with the book's thinking. The book, by the way, that we're talking about today is Little Brother by Cory Doctorow. 
yeah. came out in 2008 and is a definitely a young adult novel, I would say. So we talked about A Boy and His Dog, the movie, which we were stretching a little bit. So the main character is 18 years old, but uh, it doesn't have the tone of a young adult novel or yeah. a young adult story, or the movie is very much not a young adult story. Very, very much. Both because of the subject matter and just the tone of it, that it's very fatalistic. Right. Whereas this one actually has a surprisingly sort of chipper, upbeat tone a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Young people solving problems, young people being able to change things. That's interesting to contrast how immediately horrifying all the things that are happening are, because they're very, they seem very like tangibly nearby. Yeah, this is the only thing we're doing or will do probably that freaks the hell out of me. Right. Like, mm-hmm. I, I really procrastinated on reading this because I knew it was going to make me really upset. Mm. And uh, and it did, yeah. But but it, it does have this nice problem-solving, optimistic side to it as well. Yes. It's a polemic, just very thinly disguised as a young adult novel, mm. with a lot of very specific instructions and uh, philosophy. The novel goes into a lot of fun technical tangents that last for... Uh you know, pages and pages or like a half a chapter of like, oh, here's how encryption works or uh, here's how an RFID tag works. And some of, the, some of those are relevant to security. Some of them are just like fun. Like I think he talks about like LARPing for a while. So do you think that the motives of people, other people who write dystopic fictions is to communicate, like is to educate people in the same way that this uh, this is? I mean, even like Hunger Games, it's sh- showing a part of our society. You can see where it's coming from, this idea of, you know, watching violence and and having it as sort of an entertainment and this kind of stuff. But it doesn't have the kind of specificity that Little Brother has in terms of this is a thing that you should worry about. Here is the model number of the thing. Right, <laughs> right. I would say that um, 1984, which it's obviously riffing on, George Orwell was really trying to give you some tools. And he was saying, here's what it feels like to live in a repressive government. If you have these things in place, if you have the two-minute hate, if you have the memory hole, if you have, we have always been at war with Eurasia, all these things tell you that you're starting to live in a totalitarian state, no matter what the rhetoric is. It's like, here are the signs, like you can self-diagnose uh, that your situation yeah. is poor. And then it doesn't really say that that they're actually useful. He, he's like, it's going to go to <laughs> shit anyway. Yeah, um, you'll be crushed. You won't right. resist. This is just letting you know that that crushing is coming. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, so this is a much more upbeat book than 1984. Right, but that applies to every book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what 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 would we have said if there wasn't Big Brother? Like, just think about it. Man, this new bill is like Big Brother. Right. What what would we say if it wasn't if 1984 had never been written? This new bill is like it's like there's something looking at you that's a person, <laughs> and it knows best. It's like that guy from The Hunger Games. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. <laughs> cool. So we're going to treat this just like any other young adult dystopia, though. We're going to yeah, run through the story. We're going to talk about the plausibility, the scariness, hope for the future, and how would we do, which should be interesting. Right. Talk about that. <laughs> the story. All right. So we start with Marcus and a few of his friends. And he's kind of this like technology-oriented guy who's at a high school in uh, San Francisco. And one day they, so- they decided to skip school and go play this ARG or alternate reality game, which brings them across the Bay Bridge to Oakland. Now, while they're there, the Bay Bridge gets blown up. They actually think it's like an earthquake. Just yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. And as they're trying to get back, they try to maybe take the subway, but it gets really busy in there. 
and one of his friends, Daryl's, gets shivved. And so they go out onto the street and are trying to wave medical assistance down, and they get pulled into a dark black van. They flag down a military truck, and they just get bags put over their heads and, and picked up. Right. Taken away. Because it's still in the middle of this, like, terror and confusion, air raid sirens going off, everybody running around. And, the, yeah, so the military is just grabbing anyone who's looks like they're in the area when they shouldn't be. And because they fit the profile, they're immediately grabbed. Mm-hmm. So Marcus is taken to this prison and interrogated by a woman with a severe haircut. Uh, and he doesn't see his friends, and then he he seems to be getting punished. Like, they they don't give him a, a spot where they can go to the bathroom, so he ends up, like, pissing himself, which he finds humiliating. And I believe his bed gets taken away. And a few days pass. Yeah. They make him sign this document that says he was willingly helping the DHS, the Par- Department of Homeland Security, that's the people who grabbed them. Uh, he, he was willingly helping them with their investigation. And they threaten him and say that if he ever tells anybody what really happened, they're, they're watching him. And They'll grab him and take him back. Yeah, they're, they are on his radar, or he is on their radar forever. And if he ever tells somebody, they will grab him and take him back and never let him go. Very scary stuff for a 17-year-old. Him and a couple of other friends, but not Daryl, the one that was stabbed, uh, are released back where they were picked up. And then he makes his way home. So he's sent back home. He can't tell his parents what happened. But he feels extremely violated by his privacy and also that his friend Daryl hasn't come out. Sort of disappeared. And so he basically vows revenge that he's going to take on the Department of Homeland Security. Right, but he's he's still like pretty shell shocked. So like initially, it's just like he wants to reclaim like a sense of self control, and I think like he spends just a lot of time in his room. And one of the things he notices is that his laptop has been modified. The case doesn't close properly, and he knows this because he's a a cool protagonist who built the laptop himself and is super tech savvy, and he becomes suspicious. And so what he does is he discovers there's this uh, software online where you can take an Xbox and put your own operating system on it. And he starts, he installs this himself and starts distributing these disks at school. And that starts something that's called Xnet, which is like a peer-to-peer internet uh, that allows kids to talk to each other. That can't be wiretapped in the same way as the public internet. Right. The Department of Homeland Security is using this as an excuse to increase the surveillance much, much more beyond which is probably even effective. And it's certainly oppressive. Right. The middle section of the book is really a cat and mouse game between Marcus and his friends on the Xnet mm-hmm. and the DHS mm-hmm. of them using different tactics to try to disrupt the amount of surveillance they're experiencing. And basically every tactic they try, while successful, just results in the DHS kind of doubling down and putting more money and more people into the field. You know, they find out that they're tracking all the subway cards and bus passes and toll paying cards anything with an rfid chip all the locations of those are being tracked and correlated into a big database so they can see if somebody is moving in a way that they shouldn't people who aren't just do anything outside of what's a regular commute are arrested on the suspicion that their pattern is unusual it's very much like an us versus them thing uh because marcus's dad who's just a regular nine-to-five commuter uh has this attitude that, well, if you have nothing to hide, then why do you think that there's something wrong with this? 
and so Marcus decides that in order for everyone to realize how messed up this is, that more people need to be taken in by this sort of big dragnet of random stuff. And so he starts spreading this idea of people cloning other people's uh, cards and RFID devices just to create so much noise in the system that it becomes totally useless. Yeah, and his dad gets taken in and, and questioned, which kind of mm -hmm. helps to change his mind about this. Marcus then becomes more involved in organizing people, essentially. So mm -hmm. he organizes a, a key signing party, which is an encryption thing, but it's also like a fun team party. Right, there's beer. There's illicit beer. Yeah. Because the XNet is sort of getting a higher and higher profile, and he realizes that it's being infiltrated by DHS agents. So he does this key party will hopefully uh, make it so that at least this group of people are kind of trusted and you know when you're talking to the person that you think you're talking to. Yeah, and then they also organize a big outdoor concert to kind of celebrate and push back called Don't Trust Anyone Under 25, I think. Mm -hmm. Or he doesn't actually organize it, but... He's, he's there. And we're all... Oh, by the way, we're all over 30. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So, we are the oppressors. Yeah. Yeah. So don't trust us, anything we say. Right. Yeah. Right. So the reason why they organize the concert is because there's a rule where you aren't allowed to assemble. The community argues that that's absolutely ridiculous because that means you can't even protest anything that the DHS is doing if you can't assemble, right? So this is a protest right. and a legal protest. So it is a form of protest, but they make it fun. They make it a an outdoor rock concert. Yeah. Mm. And not only are all these sort of kids doing it, but of course it sort of brings in old school kind of radical people yeah, yes. and it's brutally broken up by the police. So Marcus, he starts creating this blog which lists what's, what's actually happening, what uh, DHS abuses of power. And that's around the time that he runs into Zeb, right? Marcus doesn't know who he is at first. It's just this homeless guy who bumps into him. He finds a note in his pocket, I believe. Yeah. And the note says something like, I, I was also detained uh, where you were detained, and I saw your friend Daryl. He's still in there. He's okay. The important thing is that all these people are being held in this uh, military base offshore of San Francisco. Which they don't know where it is. They think it's Alcatraz for a bit, but they, then they realize it isn't because the cells are too modern. So it's, un, it's uncertain. So it's a treasure island, you were saying. Right. Yeah. Much later, they find out it's at Treasure Island, which is that island halfway between Oakland and San Francisco. Uh, and so to be clear, it's like, like a couple of weeks have passed at this point, and Daryl's parents assume he's dead. And so Marcus, this whole thing started because he wanted to get them to free Daryl, it suddenly brought back into focus by the, this letter. And he realizes that not only is Daryl alive, but he's literally like a couple miles away. Yeah. And he has been there this whole time. Yeah, he thought he might have been shipped to Syria or something like that. Right. As he's reading this letter and he's about to burn it, his mother comes in and he just kind of breaks down and uh, shows her the letter and tells her everything. And then his mom makes him tell his dad, and then they get together and they go and tell Daryl's family, uh, Daryl's dad, and uh, and the, his parents happen to know a investigative journalist, and so they go there. So Marcus generally seems to think that like adults, adults are mostly like fools in this book. They're kind of they're resting on their laurels. So this is the first adult he meets that actually like seems to have her shit together and like knows about all sorts of encryption stuff. So knows proper the proper way to anonymize. Uh, and then she has done this before several times for decades and agrees to uh, work on this story and release it anonymously. He also gets contacted by someone through the XNet who reveals that she's been a spy. She's been turned as a spy for the DHS. 
even though she's a teenager. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this person is Masha, who they also ran into when they were playing the ARG right at the beginning of the game. Uh, and so it's nice because she's basically equivalent to him. I just ended up... Mm. It's not like she was uh, tainted or like is morally tainted. She just ended up in a different situation uh, and was forced to work for the DHS. Yeah, so right. um, she tells him that she wants to get out of town and also that his days are numbered if he sticks around as well. So Right. She knows that they are on to him and they're going to pick him up very soon. So she needs him to create a big distraction so that for them to both escape which he does in the form of a gigantic vampire flash mob. Right. Mm -hmm. Which then also gets completely gassed, and people also get taken away to secret prison. He goes with Masha, but then changes his mind at the last minute that he doesn't want to go and run away to Los Angeles. Right, and so she he steals her phone, on which I believe has a photo of Daryl and a very incriminating video where the head of the DHS and a few other people including the lady who interrogated uh, Marcus at the beginning, have this incriminating talk about their plans to turn San Francisco into a police state and how they, they also really, really dislike San Francisco because it's where all the, like the, the uh, left-wing people are. Yeah, and so he brings that. Does he bring that right to the reporter? He passes it to Van, uh, who is one of his former companions, kind of has been holding a torch for him, but kind of jumped off the boat at a certain point when it was, it, it was getting too dangerous. But she does this heroic thing as well of taking the phone to the reporter. Mm -hmm. So at that point, he gets bagged again. They, f they find him sleeping under a bridge. Yeah. Once the story comes out, it's he's public. Like there's a picture of him in the story. Right. There's a big newspaper expose, Get Mo by the Bay. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't help him because he's been taken back to Get Mo by the Bay and is being waterboarded. The day is saved because the California state troopers burst in and stop him from being tortured in the midst of being waterboarded. Yeah, and they actually arrest the woman with the severe haircut. Right. Uh, and arrest the guards who are actually in the middle of torturing people. And then the DHS is banned from uh, San Francisco, or the Bay Area. And that's the happy resolution. Plausibility. So I want to start by talking about how this book came out in 2008, because that's really relevant, I think, in this case. And this is before Anonymous. Oh, yeah. Before Chelsea Manning. Oh, my God. 2010, and much before Edward Snowden, 2013. Right. Exactly two years ago, actually. That was June 2013. Mm. Edward Snowden released all of this. So it's very fascinating to read this book in light of that and think about what's changed and what it, what it foresaw. Right. So the specifics of what happened was there was a terrorist attack in San Francisco, mm -hmm. and the DHS came over and assumed a lot of authority. Yes. In San Francisco, which I assume is it doesn't have at the moment. No. In that in that specific uh, granular level. Like at the very beginning of the book, they talk about different security measures. Like uh, they talk about they were going to put cameras in the high schools, but that was shut down by the courts because it was considered an invasion of privacy. So the DHS comes in and overrides everything, including yeah, so putting cameras in in school classrooms. Yeah. And then what happens at the end is that the DHS is kicked out of San Francisco mm -hmm. by the governor. Mm -hmm. Does this even make sense? Is that something that could happen? Isn't like doesn't the federal government control the DHS? From my understanding of the United States, states do have a fair amount of autonomy in that kind of stuff, where they do have some more power 
and that kind of stuff than you know we would have here in Canada, for instance. They don't often exercise that power because it's a big risk, but yeah, one one thing that I did find very plausible about that is it just was kicked out of California. Like it's not like they abolished the DHS and then the like the president calls Marcus personally and says, Thank you very much. You you've exposed something. We'll abolish all of it. Mm. Is that's not how it you know works socially, because the DHS employs hundreds of thousands of people, I'm sure, right? So you can't just fire them all. Like whereas and I'm sure in another dystopia, like the government would be exposed and would fall down like in a period of like a couple hours. Right. Yeah, the institution of the DHS is still there. And and this is the thing, is like in this book there's a clear enemy. Yeah. But it seems to me that the real enemy is like political will in this case, like that you can't be seen as being soft on terrorism. Right. And also the apathy of like the average adult, the average person over 25, let's say. And there's the, the idea that, you know, that when something like this happens, people got out of hand. Right. Were not, this was not sort of. This approved. is not how it's supposed to work. Yeah, that those people are being, you know, reprimanded or transferred or whatever, which is, of course, something that we have definitely seen in the military in particular. Right. But we know, but we know, though, also that all of this came right down from Donald Rumsfeld. Like, we know that people tortured people at Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib. We know that they tortured people and that they were prosecuted as being rogue agents, but we also know that there was a chain that went right up to Donald Rumsfeld saying we should torture people. Right. So in the real world, there is no, you know, rogue people getting out of hand. Right, but there, but that is, I mean, it's certainly very plausible that that's how it's spun in the book. Yeah. Man, it's so, it's so funny to talk about this. Uh, like, to, it's to try to talk about this book without, like, making it sound like we're trying to make a particular political statement because normally like a young adult dystopia is like uh the old people control the young people or like you they kill everyone who's over 30 that's in logan's run and it's like meant to be about like teen angst but this is like so direct it's almost like un like painful and uncomfortable to think about because you like like in order for you to like act on ways you think about this book you actually have to go out and like do stuff in the real world you know <laughs> or you actually have to go and like figure out oh okay what <laughs> what sort of encryption do I use? Or like, what, who do I, do I know of anyone whose like rights are being impinged upon? Mm -hmm. And if you complain about that, like the, the knee jerk reaction of everyone in real life and in this book is like, Oh, do you have something to hide? Like what, what are you, what are you afraid of? Like what, exactly. why are you being so suspicious? So he goes to a lot of trouble to say, you know, there's good reasons why yeah. you, you don't want to be tracked every step of your day. Mm -hmm. I feel like Cory Doctorow, is both extremely pessimistic and also extremely optimistic. Like, you know, he his vision of how quickly things would go completely police state after something like this is quite pessimistic. But also his vision of sort of how people can fight back and the simplicity and the efficacy of various, you know, open source software and encryption and all this stuff. I think is maybe a little overly optimistic as well. Right. I mean, we've lived through 9-11 before and after. We've seen how batshit crazy America got. Like, airports changed completely. Right, mm -hmm. there's this amusing ceremony that you go on where you take your shoes off. You take your shoes off, you take your belt off. Like, all <laughs> these, uh, you, you allow your entire body to be scanned, like your actual naked body to be put into a computer. All this stuff happened really quickly, I feel like. 
all you have to say is like, there's another imminent threat. I live also lived through the Boston bombing. Like mm, I was in Boston shit, when right. that happened. So, well, this is interesting because I don't believe that the DHS got involved in that. I think it was just local police and federal police. I should look into that. But in any case, like there was a day when they just told everybody the the phrase was shelter in place. Basically, stay at home, don't go outside. And it was sort of a voluntary thing, but I'm sure you would get, you know, hassled if you were actually outside. But it was, it turned out to be these just these two 19-year-old and 22-year-old um, but they were, I mean, it, it was literally a running gun battle and they were throwing a bomb out of the back of their car as the police were chasing them and stuff. So it was scary, but it was also scary how much we complied with it. Like afterwards, we're all like, hey, that was kind of funny how we all just complied well, with the government completely. Like were, were there any long-term, if like was any, was there anything put into place in Boston, you know, using the, that as an excuse? I wish I could comment better on that because that's the thing that scares me the most. Because you don't know, it becomes the new normal, right? Changing policy, using it as, a, as an opening to change policy, as it says in the book, putting cameras in, in classrooms, which wasn't okay before. And now, right, for some right. reason, the world is different. For me personally, the like, you know, we just had a terrorist attack or whatever, don't go outside for a little bit, seems pretty reasonable. Well, but, I mean, it is an extraordinary... But the, the idea of extraordinary measures being put into place in an extraordinary circumstance and then not being rescinded when that extraordinary circumstance is over, right? A leverage to put something into place that then can't be easily removed. Yeah, well, here's one. After the Boston bombing, stadiums in Boston, um, you weren't allowed to bring a bag in, like anything bigger than a purse after that point, which is kind of insane. And it's basically like... I mean, when you analyze it, it doesn't make anything safer, but it helps the vendors a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the price of water inside airports. There's an entire industry. An entire industry was spawned that makes tiny bottles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Canada, there is a bill that just passed, uh, Bill C-51. Oh, yes. Um, it was pushed through very, very quickly into the different levels of approval. Wasn't that inspired by the there being a gunman in the capital in Ottawa. I mean, I'm sure that was not, uh, I, I think that I'm was, sure that, I'm I think sure that, that was, was used to push it through that, that there was a random mentally ill person shooting people in, a, in the capital in Ottawa, that this was used to justify like a wiretapping spying bill. Yeah. I mean, the big, the big thing with the bill is that it's removing a lot of the, the walls between different intelligence organizations. So like between the RCMP and, CSIS, which is the Canadian equivalent of like the CIA, FBI. So anyone with a badge of any kind can access all of our private information, not just anti-terrorism people. I mean, there's no, there's no way to put a thing, a measure in place that this bill allows us to track terrorists better without it being able to also track people who aren't terrorists. Right. And even if it did, even if they divine, they, they said the word terrorist, that the like definition of that word would slowly slip towards like suspicious people towards like well, you know kids who like wear hoodies mean, in parks that we don't like drug dealers yeah. scumbags I mean, people who are subversive <laughs> one of the 
things that has been said about this particular the bill c51 is that by the definitions put out for in the bill certain organizations like you know greenpeace or something could be considered to be a terrorist organization right right i i just feel like it's very frighteningly plausible that like what if there was a terrorist attack in canada and stephen harper was a prime minister who's a right-wing asshole by the way for non-canadian listeners hmm. And a sneaky one, too. He's like George W. Bush if he was really sneaky and smart, um, <laughs> in my opinion. And started with a country that's actually pretty socialistic and pretty left and right. was just trying to it doesn't change have it the, as like, much as he could. It doesn't have like the odd gaffes that George W. Bush ever did. Yeah, and disarmingly boring and bland. Right. So nobody pays too much attention to him. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I really fear for what would happen, for how much legislation he'd be able to get through if, if there was a real attack. So, I mean, in terms of plausibility, like one thing that's interesting to investigate uh, is like, why do these organizations, which are composed of real people, why do these organizations want to put these measures in place? So the, mm. the like main antagonist in the, in the book is um, the lady with the severe haircut, who's the, the torturer slash interrogator in Gitmo by the Bay. What's motivating her? Like, is she just an asshole who like enjoys torturing people? Like how it works in reality is that there's just pressure from above. It's a hierarchical organization. They're saying, you have one mission, which is to stop another terrorist attack. Right. Like, you have nothing else you're supposed to think about. You're not thinking about personal freedom. You're not thinking about privacy. That's the one thing. Collect everything. And that and they, so because they're so specialized and so hierarchical, and, the, and so you have, to do, and, you have to make proof that you're doing your job. So, I mean, I've heard the term theater of security. Where you're like, wow, this place is really secure because of all the shit that seems to be going on. You have to be seen to be doing a lot of things, too. And, but there's nothing pushing against it if you're doing it all in secret. There's no, there's no, no oversight right. in, in an effective way. In some ways, I think that was a bit of a failing in terms of plausibility for the book. Because for sure. Because the antagonistic people did seem a little mustache twirly, I gotta say. Yes. Carrie Johnston, the severe haircut lady, she is uh, gleefully waterboarding this kid. But, but this is the thing that I've noticed following all this stuff that is probably the scariest part. Maybe this will just morph into scariness, but... <laughs> scariness. Which is, it is kind of, yeah. which is also scary, the fact I, that plausibility morphs into scariness, but there it is. Yeah, no, for sure, which is that the way these agencies operate in practice is as though they have pride that can be hurt and that they will lash back. Like if you saw what happened to Bradley Manning, mm. I didn't think that the United States would take a United States citizen and just start torturing him. Uh, who, her now. Yeah, now it identifies as female. Chelsea um, Manning. But Chelsea Manning, yeah. But, um, but they did, and it's because they were so humiliated. Because those... The, Stuff was revealed that was personally embarrassing to powerful people. But in contrast to what I said earlier, I think there's also this element of you need to comply. In reality, police are so much about just domination. Like, you must submit to our authority, otherwise we will fuck with you. Like, if, you, if, if your job is security and 99.5% of the time everything is secure and nothing matters, you're just going to go crazy. And I think that, like, the way you fix that is like think about these institutions in terms of like how can we like promote you know a better environment for the people who, on the ground who are like supposed to be doing the security work and if you like give them tools to enforce security in some way and like don't maybe don't give proper training 
or or you like put them under pressure situations, they'll just turn into assholes. Like that, I mean, that's the Stanford uh, prisoner experiment, right? Right, right. Yeah, and it's if you don't have this force push, pushing back, that if they can't get in trouble for being assholes. Right. They do at the end of this book, but we discussed is a little implausible. Uh, well, I mean, do they? Like, they just get kicked out of the state, uh, and that's and that's maybe making it more plausible. Like we initially called it implausible, but maybe it is uh, plausible because there weren't any really long term repercussions for the people who are in charge. We know that she is like, running something in Iraq now. Yeah. Which might yeah. might I even mean, be a promotion. What's what's barely plausible is that the state government might feel like they've been humiliated or that they've been right. bullied and then fight back against that. I mean, that's something that's certainly plausible. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time, as it's the strong gesture is, you know, the terrorists came, so we've got to crack down on security. But if you can get it to go the other way, where that strong gesture is these DHS people are corrupt. We've got to throw them out and release everybody, <laughs> which obviously can be a positive thing, I guess. But it's sort of this idea of concentrating on sort of how how it will appear and how, how to sort of be, I guess, forceful and look like you're doing stuff. I guess that's part of like a negative part of democracy. Like you have to like, you have to like look good, right? Right. <laughs> As opposed to, you know, doing putting into place things that will make incremental changes that over the long term will have will be very positive. Right. Yeah, well, and that's, I think, maybe he's providing a bit of a signpost there that if you can set things up so that the powers that be can look really good by fixing things. But the problem is that it's all secret. You have to bring things to light. Otherwise, these forces can't work. Yeah. You know, you can't. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so we have started talking about scariness mm-hmm. a little bit, or, or quite a bit. <laughs> so degree of here. scariness yeah. is what the section is. We'll pull is. this together. Yeah. yeah. Like, this is obviously in another universe from The Giver, or, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> you know, what, like, tightly controlled societies where everybody follows these exact rules. I mean, in North America, we have a lot of surface-level freedom. But I, I think what this book talks about is, like, what if you... If you push a little, then it all kind of dissolves, this freedom. Right. And like if you push a lot, and especially if you're one of the less privileged type of people, like to Cory Doctorow's credit, he specifically mentions that he's the only white person who was arrested. Yeah. That things would have been a lot worse if he was a Muslim, for example. Yes, they mention when they re-enter Gitmo by the Bay that's they're primarily like poor-looking and non-white-looking people. So we, and we don't see that face of our country very often. But it's there. It really is there. But like, here's a passage of the book. Uh, Some of the people that were on Treasure Island with us got taken away in helicopters. They got taken offshore. There are countries where America can outsource its torture. Countries where you will rot forever. Countries where you wish they would just get it over with, have you dig a trench, and then shoot you in the back of the head as you stand over it. So all of us read that passage, and we all went, yeah, that sounds about right. (laughs) Well, so, I mean, again, this is... Which is the scariest part. (laughs) This is 2008. This would be obviously just as Obama's coming in, and you know there's all the all the obviously they Gitmo by the Bay. Of course, they're referencing uh, you know Gitmo in uh, in Cuba, and this still is, open, right? Oh yeah, yep, still open despite pledges that it would be closed. Seven years after Obama was elected, um, but the idea that, that so I mean clearly. That was something that was very much on the mind, sort of national consciousness at the time. In some ways now, you know, with with various other 
stuff from Chelsea Manning and the uh, stuff from Edward Snowden things, you know, sort of more shocking things have almost kind of superseded it, but it's still there. Yeah. So this isn't our funniest podcast. <laughs> no, no. Can we, can we do another horrible, like goofy dystopia later? Um, <laughs> hope for the future. Right. So part of the hope is that, I mean, part of it is this somewhat implausible having a specific enemy, having him kicked out, but also that, that we can learn and that we can teach, um, older generations what's what's up with this mm-hmm. um yeah there's a lot of very positive speechifying in this that i think yeah i mean this is a real thing there are really people fighting this fight out there specifically the electronic frontier foundation and the aclu mm-hmm. american civil liberties what would the group be in canada i feel bad i don't know uh there's uh, i also feel bad um but yeah, I like that our hero was always overcoming this fear. Mm-hmm. That 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 the the natural thing to do if they said we're the DHS and we're we're watching you is to do nothing, to just you know curl up in a ball and live as carefully as possible. And he doesn't do that. Well, he does initially, which is uh, which is kind of cool. Like through friends, uh, and particularly the, his girlfriend Angie, whose their relationship starts during the course of this book, he like realizes what he has to do over time so he isn't like implausibly like on this right away you know so like mm-hmm. uh cory makes you not feel bad if you like have a moment of ptsd and uh spoiler man uh here like that's i've read uh, a couple chapters of the next book homeland like yeah he, tell me about that he still has troubles in crowded situations uh which is similar to the moment when the bomb um happened and they're kind of like getting trying to get back to the bar right near the beginning of the book so he has trouble when he's in crowds mm. uh the the follow-up homeland is i believe about five years into the future from the edition the first book so he still has like a quasi ptsd going on so homeland i guess was written much more recently like was it actually written five or six years yeah, after? 2013 yeah 2013 2013 so it's much more recently. Mm-hmm. Do you get a sense so, for how it comments on this sort of police state stuff? So I'm only I'm only like four chapters into it, uh, and and all of it so far has been at Burning Man. Okay. So which like literally <laughs> so no doesn't even count as the same stuff. reality. So how fair is Burning Man uh, in this dystopic future? Uh, uh, there's credit cards and everything. No, no, no. It, it's fine. Uh, one thing that's kind of interesting is that at the end of the first book, he's effectively a celebrity, and so. In that, at the beginning of Homeland, he talks about how like it's he wouldn't be able to do the same thing he did in the first book again because he's too well known. Right. Yeah. You, Paul, yeah. you were telling me about this uh, this Unix open source guy who takes all these elaborate privacy precautions. Richard Stallman. Mm-hmm. Richard Stallman. Richard yeah. Stallman. <laughs> or maybe yeah, that was yeah. you, Dustin. No, no. And uh, that gives him a completely unique signature on the internet. Right that would make him instantly identifiable right yeah these these attempts to like be super 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 secret if you aren't like aware of how they fit into a larger context are self-defeating right like oh no i'll just wear this like trench coat hoodie in public and then like like walk on stilts no one will be able to tell it's me no you'll be the only guy (laughs) in the trench coat with the stilts or or like you you're gonna commit a crime so you like burn off your fingertips and as a result, there's like 
ovals at this crime He's scene. The and... guy with the burned off fingertips. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Bloody stump prints. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. But one thing that makes me hopeful for the future is just Cory Doctorow um, trying to make privacy stuff sound cool, trying to make learning about electronic surveillance seem cool mm-hmm. by writing this book. Like mm. it's very clearly pitched as a young adult book that he wants oh, people yeah. to enjoy, that he wants to get into the right hands and the right minds. So one thing that's kind of cool is that any book that uh, he writes, you can download for free from his website. Um, and people will like ask to, people have contacted him in the past to be like, how, how do I uh, donate to you? And he's like, no, 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 don't donate. How about you, there's a form on my website you could use to buy a book and have it sent to a school. Mm. So this book was actually banned in a school. What? Or rather, the, a, a reading program was canceled. Yeah, yeah. Um, in Jacksonville, Florida, was it? Oh, crazy. And uh, but in fact, I think that this was absolutely a plan by Cory Doctorow. <laughs> like, if you look at he it, probably like sent him red just until he got one banned. Like the first page of the book says, "Principals are idiots." Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like I think this was a trap, actually. And there's actually no uh, drug use by the main character in the book, mm-hmm. and there's no uh, swearing in it. There is it's just the, just floating authority. There is like a. A description of sex, not like in detail, but they're like, we took our clothes off and then had sex. Uh, yeah, we we didn't really mention the romantic subplot. It's very subplot. kind of fade to black. Right, right, right. I think he deliberately wanted this book to be banned so that it would get more attention yeah. and so that it would seem cooler for a teenager to read. Oh, there also is like <laughs> underage dr- an underage drinking party. I mean, there's that. Um, yeah. And, oh, yeah, and <laughs> so to, like, endear the character in a way that I kind of find cringeworthy because I'm above 25, like, he refers to people he finds attractive as hot, but it's, like, spelled, like, H4WT, which, like, I think, like, <laughs> totally hot. awkwardly dates Cory Doctorow in a weird way. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. a lot of stuff that sounds like a 37-year-old or whatever speaking through the mouth of a 17-year-old. Right, which at least I think he's, oh, like, like, this is what the kid's like, right? Like, I think, like, at least he's, like, aware of that in a way that's kind of funny. But yeah, I, I do encounter people on forums going like, we're all fucked. The NSA knows everything. Don't even try. Right. Um, the, the Google and Facebook and Amazon, they own our ass. Like, why even fight? And this book is against that, even if it's a little naive. Although I, I was actually, I, I highlighted it just because I thought it was kind of funny. I don't know whether, I guess 2008 may have been a little different, but because the way uh, he, he dedicates each chapter to a bookstore, just kind of a neat oh, cool. idea. Um, uh, Corey, yeah, so he, he dedicated this chapter to a bookstore, and chapter two is dedicated to Amazon. Yeah, which caused t- probably 10 of those bookstores to not exist anymore. Amazon has always treated me like gold. The founder, Jeff Bezos, even posted a reader review for my very first novel. Amazon's in the process of reinventing what it means to be a bookstore in the 21st century, and I can't think of a better group of people to be facing down that thorny set of problems. I'd be curious to know if his opinion of Amazon has changed it all over the years. All the chapters are are dedicated to Amazon. All of them. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, (laughs) Amazon Amazon is redefining what a bookstore means. It means Amazon. (laughs) Hmm. How would they do? So in this case, the dystopia that we're talking about is basically our current world. How would we do in this world? What, what do we do? How has it changed knowing about this type of stuff that 
Cory Doctorow talks about here? Well, it's really not. It's really hard to not change your daily life without feeling that you're paranoid to yeah. yourself or to other people. Like there's certain measures that are plausible, and there's certain measures that are crazy paranoid. I don't use a piece of duct tape to cover the camera on my computer, right? Because regardless of what the chances are of that being on, it would look crazy to other people, and I don't want to. I did that for about a week, I think. Cool. And then I was, then I had somebody over, and I was like, "This doesn't look good." Nope. <laughs> Take this off. And that's what the corporations want. I want to be, I want to be secure, but I don't want to look silly. Right. Yeah. Right. Have you ever been in GChat and been like, think you have a joke about planning to blow something up, and then think maybe I shouldn't write but that? But we're we're on Skype. We're on Skype. Yeah. Yeah. We're. Be, this is probably being collected. I. I would um, hope so. Like, if I was to say on Skype, I want to kill the president of the United States, right. would it be flagged? Well, for me, I'm probably flagged now. Thanks. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you guys. Yeah, you're in Italy. You're probably okay. Right. <laughs> You'll never get me. <laughs> um, <laughs> Run into the Alps. I had a a coach, like, uh, when I was at uh, in, in undergrad, I had, like, a gymnastics coach, and... So this was this was like would have been around like 2007 or something like that. And he took a trip down to Washington D.C. and he told me, "Oh yeah, I was really impressed with the security down there. Uh, the ragheads are never going to pull something uh, off successfully again." And I was like, "What?" Re- regarding like forgetting the racist comment for a second, like how what gives you the ability to assess that other than you were impressed mm-hmm. by the amount of stuff and things that looked really secure and like yeah. maybe the people yeah. driving up and down the the roads with guns like that doesn't stop a plane <laughs> at all yeah so There's... how are you like how are you delusionally able to think that that has that that could stop everything like he, he was very confident scanners. like he said it'll never happen again like not not like if he'd said like oh it's pretty secure it'll reduce the probability right no but he's like no they'll never get a We're chance safe. again what <laughs> jesus it's there i mean there's there's one time uh, I was traveling across the border. This was back in 2005 or so. By myself, young male traveling alone. Mm-hmm. So, like, I got pulled aside on the the thing, and and they went through my my bag, pulled everything out, and looked at all the stuff that I had. And because you know, they said, "What's your purpose for being in the states?" I, and I was just, I'm here to, I, I just want to sort of look at your visit your country <laughs> i'm on vacation visiting your country for, yeah, do, you, know, do you do you not get that sometimes it's fun to visit yeah and, and the 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 response was that is not a reason people usually give <laughs> we're gonna have to pull you aside <laughs> paul 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 the way you get across the border without any problems is you go with your parents now that's no problem man we we it took me longer to get across the border with my parents uh, it took me almost as long to get across the border with my parents, but that was because they were chatting with the border guard <laughs> and just having talking about, you know, there interesting things that were going on. Middle-aged white people, right? Yeah, <laughs> and the, Very hey, we're, all, we're all in the same club, right? The weird problem is when they're somehow incentivized to like put on a show that they're constantly vigilant and making you secure, and that I think sets up a expectation. Where they need to constantly be doing stuff, and that like leads to the mindset that we encounter in this book. Yeah, and so and the book basically advocates for this idea of little brothers, citizens surveilling the surveillance, surveilling abuses of power. Ah, yeah, there's a term for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
there's it's called surveillance so s o u s valence so it's like uh, surveillance from underneath and i think this mm-hmm. is a very important and powerful force in our society right now like just in the last year all these police violence yeah yeah and i mean they all this stuff with you know yeah phone phone cameras and dashboard cameras and all that kind of stuff and like literally nothing would have happened if the, that footage didn't exist yeah they would have gotten away with it completely the energy in the crowd was amazing you hear people talk about vibes and energy for big groups of people but until you've experienced it you probably think it's just a figure of speech it's not It's the smiles, infectious and big as watermelons, on every face. Everyone bopping a little to an unheard rhythm, shoulders rocking. Rolling walks, jokes and laughs. The tone of every voice, tight and excited, like a firework about to go off. And you can't help but be a part of it. Because you are. By the time the bands kicked off, I was utterly stoned on crowd vibe. The opening act was some kind of Serbian turbo folk, which I couldn't figure out how to dance to. I know how to dance to exactly two kinds of music, trance, shuffle around and let the music move you, and punk, bash around and mosh until you get hurt or exhausted, or both. The next act were Oakland hip-hoppers, backed by a thrash metal band, which is better than it sounds, then some bubblegum pop, then Speed Horse took the stage, and Trudy Dew stepped up to the mic. My name is Trudy Dew, and you're an idiot if you trust me. I'm 32, and it's too late for me. I'm lost. I'm stuck in the old way of thinking. I still take my freedom for granted and let other people take it away from me. You're the first generation to grow up in Gulag America, and you know what your freedom is worth to the last goddamn cent. The crowd roared. She was playing fast, little skittery, nervous chords on her guitar, and her bass player, a huge fat girl with a dikey haircut and even bigger boots and a smile you could open beer bottles with, was laying it down fast and hard already. I wanted to bounce. I bounced. Ange bounced with me. We were sweating freely in the evening, which reeked of perspiration and pot smoke. Warm bodies crushed in on all sides of us. They bounced, too. "'Don't trust anyone over twenty-five, she shouted. We roared. We were one big animal throat roaring. Don't Don't trust trust anyone anyone over 25. 25. Don't trust anyone over 25. Don't Don't trust trust anyone anyone over 25. 25. Don't trust anyone over 25. Don't Don't trust trust anyone anyone over 25. 25. Don't trust anyone over 25. She banged some hard chords on her guitar, and the other guitarist, a little pixie of a girl whose face bristled with piercings, jammed in, going weedledy-weedledy-weedledy-dee up high past the 12th fret. It's our goddamn city. It's our goddamn country. No terrorist can take it from us as long as we're free. Once we're not free, the terrorists win. Take it back. Take it back. You're young enough and stupid enough not to know that you can't possibly win, so you're the only ones who can lead us to victory. Take it back. Take it back, we roared. She jammed down hard on her guitar. We roared the note back to her, and then it got really loud. So that was Little Brother. It's interesting to have a reality check every once in a while and realize that there's dystopic elements to our own culture right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is It is certainly the most immediate of youth dystopias I can think of. Uh, and also is not, like you compared it to 1984 in the beginning, it's not like just meant to make you feel bad, like it's a manual. Yeah, there's an encouragement to fight the future for young people to take up arms and actually oppose a vision of the future. That is more and more surveillance, more and more government control. Thank you guys very, very much for inviting me on board for this 
uh, this journey, despite the fact that it may have been traumatic. (laughs) (laughs) And if you don't hear from me, they've taken me. Yeah, this may be the last episode of the podcast. Right. (laughs) More so for me, because I'm in America. You're in America. And like all the the locations in the book are within a kilometer from me. That seems pretty suspicious to me. Almost like I planned it. Right. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Dustin, too, as well. Uh, All the way from San Francisco. So this is a Loading Ready Run podcast. And a reminder that this podcast, uh, as with everything on Loading Ready Run, is supported by our Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash loadingreadyrun. And the theme song is by Bradley Rains. And all the interstitial segments are by Kiara Kant. If you enjoy this podcast and want to support us, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. Or you can give us feedback on our forum at loadingreadyrun.com slash forum. So thanks a lot for listening. Yeah, I'm going to put in a little plug here for aclu.org and for eff.org, which are very relevant to this. Mm. Check it out. Find out what's going on. And may the odds always be in your favor. (laughs) Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye. Ci vediamo. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs>